This Restorative Justice Life is a production of Amplify RJ. Follow us on all social media platforms at Amplify RJ or sign up for our email list to stay up to date on everything we have going on. And to get the most involved, join our free Mighty Networks community to get connected with others living this restorative justice life all over the world. As far as this podcast goes, make sure you're subscribed, leave a rating and review, and share with a friend to help us further amplify this work. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to This Restorative Justice Life, the podcast that explores how the philosophy, practices, and values of restorative justice apply to our everyday lives. I'm your host, David Ryan Barcega Castro-Harris, all five names for the ancestors, and I'm the founder of Amplify RJ. On this podcast, I talk with RJ practitioners, circle keepers, and others doing this work about how this way of being has impacted their lives. Joaquin, welcome to This Restorative Justice Life. Who are you? I am a father. Who are you? I am um, the son of an immigrant. Who are you? I am a husband. Who are you? I am happy. Who are you? I am a restorative justice practitioner. Who are you? I am a proud son of a tough mother. Finally, for now, who are you? I am the community. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to get into so many of those intersections of who you are um, right after this. Hey, folks, it's David, not the producer, but the host. Elise is off this week, but I wanted to check in and tell you how excited I am for this conversation with Joaquin. If you were paying attention closely to the This Restorative Justice Life podcast feed, you saw a preview, or rather heard a preview, of us talking about the way that he uses negotiation as a restorative practice. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to try out sharing these snippets, these previews of our guests sharing restorative justice practices that you can start integrating into your everyday lives. And it's just another way for you to continue to share this work and share these little digestible snippets with a friend, somebody who you're working with who could use an introduction to this work. As I shared yesterday, Joaquin Mobley is the Vice President of Community Works and co-owner of Community Ties in the Community Barbershop based out of Colorado Springs. He's helping individuals who have been recently incarcerated or at risk of becoming incarcerated realize their true potential and manifest their limitless potential. He's leaning on his experience as someone who has been incarcerated for the better half of a decade to use the framework of lending a helping hand instead of giving a hand out to motivate folks for success. There are so many gems and insights from our conversation that I can't wait to share it with you. But if you're listening to this podcast on launch day, September 1st, or really any time before September 4th, I want to let you know, even though that we previously shared that yesterday was the deadline to apply for the fall restorative justice intensive, we've extended the deadline to Sunday, September 4th. Because of our team's capacity, we're consolidating cohorts and we'll only be offering the live sessions on Saturdays, September 10 and 24, October 8 and 22, and November 12 and 19 from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Pacific, 12 to 3 p.m. Eastern. Make this fall the time to deepen your racial and restorative justice practice. Connect with like-minded folks across the country by diving deep into this enlightening course material, tough conversations, deep sharing, vulnerable internal work mixed with levity, joy, and community collaboration. Over the six live meetings, we'll be collaboratively learning how to develop self and community care practices, getting rooted in our personal values and shifting our behaviors to align to those values, examine the intersections of our identity and socialization, and create space for vulnerable sharing using restorative communication practices, and dive into preparing for and facilitating restorative processes. In our efforts to break up with capitalism, move in abundance, and share, I amplify this work as far as it can reach, we're committed to making this round of learning financially accessible. So don't let money be the reason you don't apply. If you can make the time investment in participating in this deep communal learning journey this fall, please apply. Link in the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's get into our full conversation with Joaquin. Welcome back to This Restorative Justice Life. Joaquin, it is so good to meet you. Um, it's not often that the person who tags the guest in is just so responsive and like, yeah, let's do it. So shout out to Deb for making this connection. Um, it's always good to start with a check-in. Um, so to the full extent that you want to answer the question, you know, you said happy, but how are you? Uh, I'm in a good space, right? Uh, we got a lot of positive things going on. 
uh, within my both both of my my work life, uh, I guess capacity of my job and you know my personal life. So I'm happy. I'm I'm I guess I'm more happy of what's going to happen here in the near future. Mm, I'm sure we're going to talk about some of those things uh, coming up, but um, we like to start at the beginning, especially with your journey with restorative justice. You've been doing this work for, for a minute now, but you were probably doing this work in some way, shape or form, even before you knew the word restorative justice. So how did this work get started for you? Uh, for me, this goes back actually to middle school. Um, a lot of my peers um, you know, came to me as kind of uh, a leader right? In some shape, form, or fashion. And um, I took on a role in middle school as being a conflict manager, right? So whenever there was an issue, before it got escalated up to, um, you know, the principal, vice principal, you know, all that stuff, admin, um, me as a student, I would intervene and try to find the resolution between two students. Uh, More often than not, we found that resolution. Sometimes, you know, unfortunately, we weren't able to, but we at least tried and made the effort. Yeah. What was an example of that that stands out to you? Um, so, um, you know, typical kid, I grew up in games, right? So I think I got put into a game when I was maybe six or seven years old. Um, so there was an issue where, uh, an individual from a different gang, uh, had a little bit of contention with the gang that I was a part of. Um, so as opposed to choosing sides, and once again, this is middle school, um, I had them come together and we tried to find some common ground. Uh, and I just, you know, use the basic, you know, understanding, which is that we have more in common than we have indifference. Um, and from there, I was able to leverage that uh, and, you know, have a, I guess, for lack of a better term, a happy ending. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not every middle schooler has that um, in them, both like as a leader, the confidence to step into that. Did you see that modeled somewhere? Where did you learn to do that? Yeah, Um you know, growing up the way I grew up, um, you know, my mom, very tough lady. She was often a mediator in a lot of tougher situations. Um, so I just seen her model that so many times, um, you know, even within our family, right? There's a lot of contention, you know, just growing up how we grew up, especially in the 80s and 90s. Um, there was so much contention. My mom would often step in and uh, be that voice of reason. Mm. And like, was it ever through like, hey, this is what you do, baby, or like just like learning through osmosis? Learning through osmosis. And it it was never this is what you do, baby. This is how you go. Like my mom's very strong in that sense. And that's where I get my strength from. Um, she was very just when she spoke, even the toughest gangsters listened. Mm-hmm. And seeing that example, I imagine, like, gave you the confidence, like, even though you were yourself involved, right? Like, hey, we are people, like, we're brothers, like no matter, you know, who you're affiliated with, where you live, like there is that commonality that that's a lot for a middle schooler. So, you know, props there. How did that uh, continue um, through high school beyond? You know, as I got into high school, the, the issues became a little bit more serious. It went from having a misunderstanding and avoiding a possible fistfight um, to now my friends are being killed. Yeah. Right. I think to date I have 15 of my friends have been murdered. Right. Uh, I've seen, I believe, three people murdered. I've seen my stepfather get shot in front of me. Um, so, you know, I'll be lying to you if I said that I, I had the ultimate poise. Um, you know, I kind of backpedaled a little bit and I was just like, well, they're they're trying to hurt us. So I took the opposing side mm-hmm. um, and became contentious just as some of my counterparts. Um, but through that, um, I call it like a trial and error. Um, I seen that it was it was bigger than just us versus them, right? Uh, And so I would say, as I got out of, I start transitioning out of high school, um, I start realizing that, you know, the essence of, you know, when I was being a conflict manager, that is what's needed. It's not, we don't need any more gangbangers. We don't need none of that. We need more uh, uh, problem solvers. Right. Right. So then I was able to, you know, kind of rekindle that spirit and and really get focused on that again, right? And solving more issues. This time, a little bit more uh, uh, serious. You know, I've, I've been in the middle between two people holding guns, and I've been in the mid- middle where they're holding guns and they're actually shooting them. Um, so um, through that, you know, I've been able to talk people out of actually killing each other. So, right over things that like, well, it's never that serious, right? Even when you're talking about like you're selling on my block or you disrespected 
me in some kind of way. It's not somebody's life on the line there, right? Um, at that time, you didn't have the analysis of restorative justice, quote unquote, right? But when we think about like, how do we meet people's needs in that situation? Sometimes the need is just like, you need to walk away from this alive, right? Not necessarily, hey, we're going to repair the relationship. Were there moments of restoration even then? Or was it more just like, let me de-escalate this so everybody gets to go home tonight? First and foremost, de-escalate, de-escalate, de-escalate. Um, then after that comes a restorative piece. It, and it just comes from, um, you know, when I'm seeing them out in the public, me reiterating um, who they are and how great they are. See, through my journeys um, and just talking to a lot of my elders, you know, we call them OGs or mm-hmm. old heads. Um, I was able to realize that uh, before I knew it was restorative justice, we had a common practice in Africa. Um, which is the basis of restorative justice, right? So when somebody would do something that could potentially hurt the community or has hurt the community, they would bring them to the town square. Um, But when they brought them to the town square, it wasn't to shame them. It was to remind them of their essence and how great they are. So that's what I took on, you know, as far as trying to reiterate how great they are and how great they can be. Uh, And from that on, I think they realized that the stuff that they were involved in like you mentioned, wasn't that serious. Um, and it takes them off their path to success. So, Yeah, that it's hard to do that work now that we don't live in villages where, you know, you know, the 100, 200 people um, around you. And yet, right, that affirmation of, of people is so important. Is there an example of you doing that that stands out to you? So uh, there was an instance where, um, you know, these two individuals, um, you know, had a situation over um, what originally started off them dating the same girl. Unfortunately, that's how a lot of these beefs started off. Believe it or not, whether they're opposing gangs, what uh, adds fire to it is them dating the same person, um, whether past, present or current. Uh, and then from there, they're looking for instances to have a legit, so to speak, reason to beef with each other. Um, so I knew where it was going to go. Right. Uh, so what I did was intervene and said, hey, man, you know, this isn't that serious. We're both young because I was just like, listen, I always knew just from talking to a lot of my uh, uh, teachers and professors, all that kind of stuff. They always told me, you know, you're not an adult until your mind fully develops. Right. And so when I found out that our mind doesn't develop to 27, 28, I'm telling everybody, like, you're not going to be this same person that you are now in about 10 years from now. Right. So you're going to make a decision that's going to affect the rest of your life and you're not even going to be that person anymore. Right. So obviously I used it up and jazzed it up into more street terminology, uh, but that was the crooks of it. And then once they're able to see that this is not a permanent situation, it's not that serious. Mm-hmm. Um, they were able to, you know, more often than not just say, yeah, it ain't that serious. I just go get another girl. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and it, like, Again, like guns down in the moment, addressing like the misogyny and the patriarchal thinking, um, you know, at, at a later time. And, you know, maybe it's not that, you know, restorative justice isn't always about like, hey, we're going to be best friends after this. Um, um, but like, you know, how do we move forward together? Um, how do we right coexist? Really, yeah, in a, in a good way. Um, you know, you, you talked about like the elders who who taught you and spoke that into you. Are, are there any that you want to name or, um, you know, highlight the, some of those instances where that was that wisdom was passed down and spoken into you? Yeah, uh, my great grandmother on my mother's side, we called her grandmommy. Actually, today's her birthday. Mm. Um, she passed when I was in the eighth grade, but um, she was very influential in my life. Um, you know, she was. She took on the role as the mediator in our family prior to my mother, right? Yeah. So my mother learned from her. Um, my mother, uh, they're from, you know, St. Louis. So things are a lot more uh, serious in that sense, you know, when it comes to violence. Uh, or, or it happens more often, I'll say that. Um, so uh, my grandmother, uh, my grandmommy rather, um, she knew how to like talk sternly, but in a very soothing manner, right? So it's like she didn't have to repeat herself. Right. So there were so many instances where uh, it might be a rift between it could be between my mother and one of my aunts. Mm -hmm. Um, And my grandmother knew how to step in 
and eventually get them to uh, remind, she would remind them that, you know, you guys are sisters, you guys love each other, and they would often leave hugging each other, right? So it was uh, my grandmommy who really set that tone. Yeah. And I think like, yes, it's that tone that she's using that is both like firm and loving, right? Serious. But you can't go on the street and just say, use that kind of tone with people who you don't know, right? Within the context of the relationships, the love that she poured into them over the years, the love um, or at least respect and familiarity that you had with your peers um, who were beefing, right? Like that is so important, right? A lot of times when people think about restorative justice, it's just like, okay, how can I parachute into this situation and like, hey, solve this problem for folks? Like, no, 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 no. Um, like that is the role of like, you know, some formal mediation, which, you know, I, I think is helpful and harm reductive in the world. But when we're talking about restorative justice, it's about how are we proactively building and maintaining those relationships as well? One, that's going to prevent harm, right? And so when you're talking about like speaking life into people, speaking life over people, affirming them for who they are, um, helping them see that them as part of the other, right? Ubuntu, words like that. Um, that is just as much a part of doing this work as it is about those moments where people are causing harm to each other or the moments after when we're, we're trying to repair it. Yeah. So, um, you know, what works in these situations, um, is having credible messengers, Mm -hmm. right? That's what we consider each other. So, um, being from the life, being affiliated, uh, knowing all the new nuances associated with the life is what allows for individual not to parachute, but to walk in to these instances and be able to have those conversations. Cause I see it happen so many times. I do a lot of restorative justice uh, uh, circles. Um, and when you have these individuals that they went to college, they, they have all the, they're decorated, right? Um, but they can't connect, right? And so it's somebody like me um, and some of my colleagues and peers that are able to make that connection and solve these issues. So um, having a credible messenger within these circles are very important. In fact, I think it's the foundation of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you talked about the, not just like having a college degree, uh, there are people who get degrees in restorative justice, and there are lots of ways to learn this work and no shade at that. Um, I know that's not the route that you took. <laughs> We've talked about your, um, you know, your informal indoctrination or your informal learning um, into like mediation and conflict de-escalation. But where did you first encounter the word restorative justice? Um, actually from Lynn Lee, right? She has even a book that she, uh, she wrote um, that's really well put together. Um, she informed me of it. And so uh, the name was very new to me. And I was like restorative. Like I didn't get it, uh, especially I've done so much prison time. So I was like, there's nothing restorative about this. Yeah. I, I thought they were like the name restorative and justice couldn't go into the same sentence. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, speaking with her, going to several trainings, I realized what, you know, the intention was. So, uh, yeah, Lynn Lee, she was the first to, you know, actually share with me restorative justice. What was it about that learning, either from Lynn or in that trainings, that made you understand that, like, oh, like, maybe my preconceived notions about the word justice um, were were not um, aligned with, like, you know, what this work is? Like, what was that connection? And what made you feel like, oh, this, this work is for me. This work is necessary. This work is crucial. Just going through what I've been through, like the first time I've been arrested, I was nine years old. Right. Um, and for me, justice was just had a negative connotation mm-hmm. to it. Um, right. Um, in some of my studies, they said, hey, justice means this. Uh, other people would say justice means that. So I thought it was very subjective. Um, and through this work, I was able to see that justice is about equality. Mm-hmm. Right. It's about equity. Right. Um, and so regardless of how you, you try to. Uh, put your spin on it, it's going to come back to those key points, which is equality and equity. Uh, and from there, then I start seeing how you compare the two, justice, equality, and equity. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. Was there was there a moment that that became clear that it, in your mind, or was it just like over time? Um, I think I had the aha moment when I forgot where I was sitting at, but it was actually through one of the conferences and then it just dawned on me that these practices have been going on, as I mentioned previously mm-hmm. in Africa. Yeah. Um, and then, um, you know, using the literature that I was trained on and right in the middle, I want to say I might have been even I was a facilitator 
matter of fact. So this is last year. And then it just like hit me like, oh, this is this is the 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 cross uh uh the what is it the 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 cross section of this work, right? And then I was just like, oh wow. So then I start connecting the dots, and from there I was able to, in my opinion, um, you know, implement it, you know, through conversations a little bit better. Yeah, and when I think about like formal quote unquote restorative justice work, when I when I talk when I reference the criminal punishment system or the criminal legal system, like I call them that, right? Because to your point, like that's not justice. <laughs> um, it's it's behavior control. It's it's retribution for. Um, harm that has been done, or, you know, maybe not so much harm that's been done, uh, depending on the rule or law broken. But when we think about, you know, relationships and um, re- repairing them and getting to equity and equality, right? Um, that is what we're, we're working towards. And, you know, when you encounter that both in literature and in, um, and in practice as a facilitator, as a learner, um, how have you like, yeah, infused that into the way that you are doing your work, living your life? Man, every day is a struggle, right? Um, you know, I'm still dealing with things, um, you know, how I grew up. So I have past trauma as well, a lot of trauma. Um, so what I try to do is um, make sure that I'm allowing people to, like whether we're having a conversation uh, whether it can even turn into a debate, I'm allowing them to express themselves to their full capacity, right? That's something I took away from um, my restorative justice training is by giving people a safe place and a platform to confidently uh, express themselves. Yeah. Right? And I think that helps us solve a lot of issues. Yeah. And like, that's not always in a formal circle, right? That takes place in conversations that takes place in lots of different spaces. Um, What are some of the other spaces that you've been able to create those uh, platforms for people or uh, spaces for folks to share confidently or even build that confidence uh, to get to that point? And I've I've been in the middle of like the club, (laughs) right? Where something is about to happen um and i get the people talking and we get them talking so much and everybody's giving each other space to really express themselves even with the loud music everything going on all that stuff uh and from that you know they talk themselves out of going to the next level so uh, we've been you know i feel like it's ingrained in me Mm -hmm. now uh so you know i i think i do it without even thinking about it so it, it could happen in a club uh, it can happen in the shopping center, wherever I can get in there and really just, you know, talk people down and de-escalate the situation and get some kind of resolve. That's where we do it. And I'm also thinking about some of the like formal work that you do, right? Not necessarily like in moments like navigating conflict, but proactively giving people spaces to to use their voices, um, like the Modus Theater, for example. Uh, can you share, you know, the work? Well, I guess like the work that you're doing with them, um, how you got connected, um, and you know how you're inviting people to, you know, take up space, share their voices in. Um, I, I, and I don't know that I would call it safe, right? Because it's risky. It's vulnerable to put yourself out there, but in those kind yes. of ways. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely not safe. I think you got to have a lot of <laughs> uh, resolve to do this kind of work if you're really in the middle of it, right? Um, you know, whether it's, you know, me stopping two people who have guns act like pulled out on each other in that moment. Um, so, um, you know, once again, I was introduced to uh, restorative justice um, in the Modus Theater um, simultaneously through Lin Lee, right? Um, what happened was, is that I was um, at the forefront of fighting uh, for a bill called Transforming Safety, mm-hmm. uh, which is currently, uh, we're actually using it and impl- implementing it now. Um, what, it, what it does, uh, before I go into the next piece, um, it actually takes money. It's a budget advocacy type, type uh, legislation. And what they do is they go into, they look at the, the DOC budget, and they say, hey, as opposed to using $2 million to buy um, staff, all, all the staff in DOC new desk, this is hypothetical. Um, they take that money and they put it into the communities, right, that are most affected by the criminal justice system, right? So for, um, for real quick context, um, we're talking about Colorado, state of Colorado legislator state of Colorado. Um, and yeah. DOC for those uh, uninitiated Department of Corrections. Continue. 
Yep, absolutely. Thank you for yeah. that. Yep. Um, so uh, with that in mind, um, I had a voice for that and I was pushing that. I was working with Senator Pete Lee um, and I was very also I'm also very active in every community that I'm involved in. And as a result of that, um, she seen my efforts. Uh, she heard my story. She introduced me to Kirsten um, and me and Kirsten sat down quite a few times and really talked and ironed out and fleshed out. What did we want to talk about within these, this modus theater stuff outside of restorative justice? How are we going to tell these stories? Mm-hmm. Right. And then, you know, once we figured that out, we had to pick the right people. Um, so, you know, from being from the lifestyle, I know several people. Right. These are just phone calls away. Um, we were able to put put it together and build something uh, beautiful. And now we're traveling, talking to uh, district attorneys around the nation. Yeah. What is the story? What is the like, can you break down the program a little bit more and what is it that you're sharing? What are you helping? What are you hoping that people are moving towards uh, by being a part uh, or being participants or um, being audience members in um, the work that you're putting out? So I got this. This thing that I live by and I say that our the, sh- the shortest distance between two people is our stories. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I really feel like. Um, you know, a lot of people that work on the you know opposite side of the aisle, like the uh, judges, the lawyers, the DAs, the cops, um, they're just doing their job in the sense that they don't understand what led us up to where we're at. So by sharing these stories, they're getting the context of what led up to this. Right. So it's bigger than, uh, you know, the crime. Right. Yeah. And what my ultimate goal is get them to realize that ontologically we're not criminals. We don't wake up in the morning and say, hey, you know, after I eat these eggs and uh, bacon, I'm going to go just commit crimes just because I want to. That's not the intention at all. Right. So by sharing these stories, uh, it creates that pathway and that conversation. Uh, But more importantly, it puts the context around what led up to these this, quote unquote, life of crime. Uh, And by doing that, um, I think it awakens something in their spirit and they start realizing that you know, uh, the criminal justice system um, is injustice, right? And they realize that this is something that was pre-planned and is bigger than them. And while they think, you know, a lot of them have the intention that they're cleaning up the community, Mm -hmm. but they don't understand, you know, the history of it, right? They don't understand none of that. And as a result of that, um, the stories, they're saying, oh, maybe I need to look more into this. Maybe I need to educate myself more. Maybe I need to be more inquisitive. Um, and we're having those conversations now with district attorneys. Yeah. And I think a lot, uh, and I was referencing this in the conversation with Deb, where Deb had been on, on that side, right. As somebody, um, advocating for people who have been, um, impacted by the criminal legal system as quote unquote, perpetrators, quote unquote, offenders, we might call them now survivors of, you know, one, their circumstances to the legal system. When we are having these conversations, um, I have the the framework of abolitionism, get rid of all of it, um, all, not like cancel those people, but like help them find other productive ways to support the community than um, locking up people. And like when you're talking about like defunding and reallocating uh, funds, like that's part of it. Um, when they are receiving these messages, has the energy been like, oh, this is the way that like we can change up these systems or like, oh, I understand like why we need to divest from this and I don't need to do this job anymore? Uh, man, that's a really good question. Um, doing this work, I, it really makes me get high centered on the systemic issues. Yeah. Right. So it's just more like. How are we going to redo this system? Mm-hmm. Right. Because everybody's impacted by it. Everybody has something, like at least in my community, everybody's been impacted by it. So, like, what does a new system look like? Yeah. Right. So it just makes you be more inquisitive. And then it's like you keep doing more and more. Cause I feel like a lot of our answers already exist. Sure. For these issues. Mm-hmm. Right. So I did a little bit of history and uh, like there's ancient civilizations where there wasn't police involved, right? And they had these big civilizations, uh, there wasn't crime. So what was going on within the inner workings of those small communities and those civilizations to where they knew that we are codependent on one another uh, to the extent that we didn't need police to police ourselves. Yeah. 
it's, it's, it's just that kind of stuff that, you know, I'm trying to figure out how do we redo this system and make it uh, beneficial for everybody. Right. And, you know, we've been separated from those ways of being really intentionally, right? Imperialism, colonization, enslavement, land theft, genocide, um, and now like forced assimilation into white supremacist, global capitalist, um, mm-hmm. like patriarchal things that like prevent us from connecting with each other, right? Seeing each other as um, commodities, transactions, not the stories, not the interconnected beings that we are. And it's really hard to do that. It's really hard to make those reconnections. I think a lot of the work that you're doing with the storytelling is is beautiful. And like in some ways, it's not really like, hey, we can scale this up, right? Um, because because it's relationships and relationships take time. I oh, yeah. like to think about all the really hyper local solutions, right? Where people don't have like build the relationships like you've talked about where um we're able to either de-escalate problems um in the in the moment that they happen or you know within our communities um have people to go to to say like hey can you help us work work through this problem right because like the police often aren't um de-escalating anything in any moment they're most often responding to um somebody calling them or responding to something that they've seen whether it's you know on patrol or on spot tracker or you, you know what what have you um and not meeting the needs of anybody in the situation and so when we're thinking about um how do we meet the needs of people in the community right sometimes those are like material needs right like you're selling on on the block because like you need money right <laughs> right um so one, it's like, okay, distribution of maybe it's just like social security welfare, but like job training, right? And I know that some of the work that you're doing with community works, we're going to get there, but, um, or, or housing, um, childcare, healthcare, like all of these things that like um, our resources, our tax dollars, right, uh, can go to. But, you know, police are never going to serve that function. I, I think there's like a sympathetic view that I can take with police where they're being asked to solve all of these problems or respond to all of these problems. And my my whole argument is like, you shouldn't have this job because we don't need you to do this. Like we need people in our community to be trained and those resources can go everywhere. But like at the bare minimum, like let's take all of these things off of your plate, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and fund all these other um, initiatives yes. that are gonna prevent some of those things. And so like, going back to the question that I asked that sent us down is like, when you are having these conversations and sharing these stories with uh, legislators, uh, prosecutors, police, like, is it is it for them? It's like, oh, now I have sympathy or empathy for like this person that I'm putting through this horrible system, or it's like, oh, fuck, like we need to do something different. Yeah, we've been getting a lot of district attorneys like Michael Doherty, uh, uh, Beth McCann. She just recently got one of our staff out. He had a 64 year sentence. He did 24. Now he's actually next door. He works for us now. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to say they're they're becoming cognizant of uh, you know these efforts uh, or lack thereof uh, within the, the criminal justice system. Uh, and as a result, I think they're seeing uh, a lot of this is the result of systemic issues, right? Um, and I think a lot of them, and this is just my opinion, that they're feeling um, you can't lock your way like we can't incarcerate incarcerate our way out of these issues that we're having right right because it's creating more issues so like if when i went to prison my kids were terribly um uh, affected um by me being out of their lives Mm -hmm. right and then you're incarcerated you know sometimes six seven hours away from them they don't have a good form of transportation so you're completely absent of their lives right so i think they're really starting to understand that like it's, it's a setup, you know, and we got to do something different, uh, even with the way the police um, come into the community. Uh, going back to what you were just mentioning, like we only see the police in the communities I lived. I grew up in southeast Colorado Springs in New York City. I used to I only see the police when something bad has happened and they're there to clean something up. I've never seen them in the capacity uh, of them coming to you know share good fortune mm-hmm. or doing. You know what I mean? I don't see that. And I'm not saying that none of them do that, but I haven't seen that. And as a result of that, when we see them, it's just like, oh, man, we know something. It's just the same when you see the, uh, 
the uh, the ambulance, right? You know something happened, right? When those sirens is on, they're on because something bad has happened. So you connect the two, bad and them. And that's the relationship and that's how we view them. Uh, I think if they worked more as far as their public relations, being in the community, um, you know, doing positive things, uh, going to football games, basketball games, um, having that connection with the people. And even I would suggest that they live within the community that they serve. Right. They know all the nuances if you live there. That's my suggestion. Right. But, yeah, I, I think the DAs are really starting to come on board and realize something got to change. Yeah. I mean, part of me is like, how could you be blind to this? Like, this is the way that the system was set up. I know there are people who got into the law, got to decided to be prosecutors because they were like, I want to lock up the bad guys. I want to keep community safe. And like, that's a lot of the reason why uh, police officers get into this work as well. And that's not really what's happening, right? To your point, um, you're, you're tearing apart families. You're causing more problems, right? As much speaking to, you know, our, our African villages, right? Um, somebody causes harm in the community. If you kick that person out of your community, they're going to die, first of all, right? And their family is now um, without a father, right? They're the people who they were also like in good relationship with contributing to those relationships, like that um, that's no longer happening. And so, you know, in your community of 100 to 200 people, one person leaving the community, that's actually like pretty devastating, right? Yeah. Um, and because the world is the way that it is, it's easier um, with like the scale at which the criminal legal system has grown, it's easier to just like, warehouse people warehouse our problems and to your point like that's not how we're going to solve things but how do people who like come into that role just not see that like that is the way that the system is set up right there's no like i'd argue that there's no redeeming that um we just have to figure out ways to equip communities to to deal with this work um to, to deal with these problems ourselves right um when uh i'm my friend, uh, Emmanuel Andre, who I hope to have on this podcast one day, he's a very, very busy person. He's both a restorative justice practitioner and community, um, and he's a public defender. Um, mm. And, you know, when we're imagining the way that restorative justice um, or maybe like policing can work together, it just has to be on that like hyper local level where, you know, communities are choosing people who live in their like geographic geographic proximity um, to say like, hey, help us solve these problems, help us deal with these problems. I think there's always going to be the need for some element of physical protection. Um, I think that is necessary. That doesn't necessarily look like state-sanctioned violence, people from outside of communities coming in and um, wrecking havoc at the first sign of trouble being quote unquote scared for their lives at the first sign of, you know, uh, a nine-year-old, right. Um, you know, acting like a nine-year-old in distress. Right. I would say this, and if you don't mind me chiming in, uh, I think there definitely needs to be more cultural competence, right. Within those, those systems. Uh, there's a lot of, when I was incarcerated, right. You know, we're, we're, we're boisterous people. Mm -hmm. So when we're playing dominoes, mm -hmm. something like that, and we're slamming them on the table, this is part of our culture, right? Sure. We, this is how we celebrate. Like, you know, it's just something we do. We grew up, I've seen all my family do it. So the guy slams the dominoes on the table. And this guy who is a uh, CO, right? Doesn't look like us, unaware of our culture. Uh, he feels like it's a physical threat. So he runs down on the guy and like is about to pull out his taser telling him to stop. And so we're all trying to explain to him, hey, man, this is just how we play dominoes. Relax. I just mm -hmm. like, man, how often does this happen in every in every uh, uh, tier of our community? So if I'm walking and it's been it's happened to me in New York, like me walking down the street, I'm listening to music, I'm bopping my head, moving my hands. And I've actually had NYP grab me and slam me up against the wall because they think I'm up to something. Right. So it's the thing that there's no cultural competence there. Right. So we got to figure what that looks like. You know, it's just it's so many things to unpack. But that's it's I think a lot of it's just not knowing the cultural nuances. Yeah. And I think that's part of it, like on maybe a personal level, but on another level, like that's what they're trained to do. See black people as threats. 
right? No matter no matter what's going on, that's not a um, that's not an internal like personal like. Do I see you as a human just like me? That's a. This is what the police, the institution of policing, has trained you to think of people with our skin color, right? They they are threats to the state in general, to whiteness, to people, and like if there's anything out of the ordinary that doesn't align with like I'm gonna say whiteness, but like what is accepted as you know quiet, polite, <laughs> you know all all of these things. Um, it, it can't be dealt with well. And so I, I'm curious, you know, in your work with Community Works, um, this organization that helps folks who, uh, it d- does a lot of things. Uh, a large part of what you do is helping folks um, find employment, like be able to, um, you know, stand on their own two feet um, through through meaningful work. You know, part of what we're doing there is like helping folks like, assimilate or like code switch into whiteness like get rid of our culture or like push down our culture and and so we can like be accepted into you know white corporate culture or like workplace dynamics that um are steeped in whiteness how do you how do you balance that uh we push well first and foremost our concept is let us help us yeah so we're very big on entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. Right. So um, we have entrepreneurship programs. We actually will go around the state of Colorado helping individuals start their own businesses with the intention. If we help you and help subsidize your business, that you're going to hire people that look like you from your community. Right. Um, So that's kind of our fight into that. And also when you come into our offices, um, we make it to where you can be comfortable being you. Mm -hmm. We celebrate our culture in our offices. Right. Yeah. Um, That's all minorities. That's all, uh, regardless, you know, LGBTQ, all, everybody is celebrated here. And we, we let them know that, uh, you know, based on the way uh, the world sees you, we actually feel that's one of your superpowers. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So um, that's how we kind of counterbalance that. Uh, but we also, you know, I'll be honest with you, we do teach you how to uh, code switch. We do teach you how to get in there and be what we call an entrepreneur. Right. So my whole thing is you can't affect you can't change the game if you're not in. it, Right. And so for those that have that ability to get in there and can affect real change, we give them the tools and we empower them even more than what they have to get in there and start changing certain things. You know, whether it's dealing with DEI. Right. Like all that kind of stuff. Um, We have to get into the game. So now we can change. it. Yeah. And I think there there's a balance of you know, when to be like your fullest self (laughs) and, and like that, that's for people who like will accept that. And in other times, like we, it's either like putting up a mask, putting an armor up so you can navigate that situation um, to the best of your ability. I think part of that is like, you know, when um, black parents have this conversation with their children about like, this is how you need to act around police. That's not because like, I don't want you to be your fullest self at all times. That's because I like, I want you to get home safely and come home to me. Right. Um, in, in the workplace, right. It is about like workplace survival, right? Like how do you continue to feed your family? How do you continue to support, um, your community with the dollars that you are earning from, uh, either working with this company or working for this company, right. That is steeped in whiteness that might not see you as, you know, all of who you are. And, you know, through those relationships, through the storytelling, uh, we build relationships and hopefully um, folks who see us as not full humans, right? Or not humans like them um, start to break that down. But I'm frustrated. And, you know, I, I learn, I, I've learned from many elders. One of the people who's really present for me is a brother named Resma Menakim, who I reference semi-often on this podcast. But, you know, thinking about there has been uh, white supremacy, anti-Blackness, enslavement on this continent longer than there hasn't been, right? From 1619 um, to, you know, 1860, shoot, uh, three, five, one of those dates. Like, that's a longer, <laughs> that's a longer time period between then and now, right? It's still generations of undoing. Um, but it never stopped, though. Not to cut you off, but it never stopped. You know, yeah, I mean, it, it transformed for sure, right? Yeah. And like, you know, the Civil Rights and Voting Act, like, you know, that is 
quote unquote progress, but like anti-blackness still lives here. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to rely on like the goodness of white people and like having them like have this transformative experience by hearing our stories. They're like, wow, you're a human who went through struggle. Let me help you. It's like, no, like, why can't you just see that from jump? Right. Like, why can't we um, move forward together um, in a good way? And I think part of that is like out reallocation of resources, right. From where they have historically been, but you know, people aren't willing to do that. And, you know, I don't have an answer, right? Um, all I have is it, it takes time. This takes time. This is generations long work. You know, the work that you're doing is empowering people right now to make impact in their own lives, in, their, in the lives of their community. Um, and it's not like solving generations of um, anti-Blackness, strategic divestment from communities. Um, but, you know, you talked about like your your efforts at Entra and intrapreneurship. Um, what are some of the stories that um, y'all are really proud of, or and some of the work that you are getting into that you know you you said you were like happy about things to come? Yep. So uh, budget advocacy, I think for us is the way that we're going to start changing things within our community. Um, we've seen the success of CCJRC as well as other organizations around the nation who have taken those dollars uh, that they use to incarcerate and imprison our people and do something positive and start building community with it. Um, we, we took note of that. And now, um, you know, we're the ones facilitating the SNAP ENT and benefits program um, with clear intention that we're gonna empower people, right? So that's where we're starting, you know? And once again, going back to our, our, um, our, our kind of our catchphrase, which is let us help us. Um, we're the ones going in there battling to get those dollars so that we can oversee what that looks like being uh, um, you know, spread out in our community as far as equity and the empowerment piece of it. So for us, that's, that's the first step is budget advocacy. It's going after those, those dollars that already exist and that they've been given to uh, organizations uh, that have been parachuting into our communities, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not doing the work, but just writing us off. Hey, yeah, so we, we helped little Timmy. Um, we bought him a book bag. Right. Mm -hmm. We're saying that's not good enough. We're saying, what else did they get from this? Right. And as a result of that, we're seeing a lot of things happen. Like, for instance, um, the people that go through our program, our recidivism is low as 2%, which is comparatively low for the ones who don't go through our program and they go through similar programs. It's at 50%. Right. So we're seeing the direct impact of budget advocacy and using those dollars correctly. Um, For uh, some of our individuals, and I'm going to highlight, um, you know, some of the people that went through our program. Um, we have a really good friend. Um, he's actually kind of like a, a contractor for our organization. Mm-hmm. Um, he is, uh, he did 12 years in prison, uh, got out, kind of felt hopeless, all that. We brung him in, empowered him. Uh, now he has his own asphalt silk coat company. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also uh, has a, uh, he's a barber. Mm-hmm. Right. And he also is uh, creating his own uh, hair products as well. Right. And because of that, uh, the people who he has direct influence over, they're seeing the possibilities and they're using that as leverage to do something different. Uh, and, you know, you're going to see you're going to start seeing the domino effect as crime will start going down as we empower more of those uh, influencers in our community. So. Right. And those on the outside can't just say like, oh, well, yeah, those still that 2% like still recidivate, right? Like this doesn't work. They also can't say like, oh, well, we put these dollars into the community and like things didn't radically transform in a year, right? Like this work takes time, Um, you know, just as much as like people are like divesting from white supremacy and anti-blackness, right? People in our community um, have been living in scarcity mindset, right? For a while also like internalized um, internalized racism and, and anti-blackness. When people tell you that you're one thing, that you're violent, you're a criminal, like over and over, like, you know, you, sometimes you start to believe them. And so to your point, like we shared earlier about like, you, we need to be speaking life into people in our community. That's an important piece. Um, and like acknowledging that people aren't going to like radically change their behaviors overnight um, when they haven't necessarily been given one, the assurance that those resources will still continue to be there, that res- those resources and support uh, will continue to be there. But two, like it's just um, it, it, it people changing people's minds, changing people's behaviors is is uh, 
is a long process. Um, for some people, there is like a life altering moment that like will push them through, but like it's through like relentless engagement, being in relationship with people. It's not just like throwing money at like the problem and saying like, here you go. <laughs> right. Yeah. Do your best. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, right. Like, you know, so for some of my peers, they're trying to figure out like, what is the incentive of not breaking the law? Right. Those are the tough questions that we deal with when we talk to our peers. They're like, look, it seems like no matter what, I'm gonna be, there's this glass ceiling that exists that even if I go this direction, I'm still going to be met, met with resistance. Right. Right. Uh, if I go the, the other way, at least, you know, you know, like 50 Cent said, I'm going to try to get rich or die trying. Mm-hmm. So that brings in that survival mentality. Right. And if you're trying to survive, you can't thrive. Yeah. Right. So when we're trying to have these conversations, um, but it's not being supported when they leave, you know, our presence, that's the issue. Right. So I can speak life into you all you want, but your environment ultimately is going to dictate how you carry yourself. Yeah. Right. And some of our, our, our monologues speak to that. So um, we're realizing that and we're realizing that uh, it's going to be a cultural shift that has to happen. But the only way that's going to happen is by have all the people within our ecosystem and our network and our communities involved in it. So that takes, um, you know, a Herculean effort on our behalf, right? And so when we're trying to do that, we're telling, uh, you know, the parachuters is what we are calling. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We're telling the parachuters, we got this. Um, let us just have access to these resources and let us help us. Yeah. Please get out the way. We respect you. We loved you for being here. But please let us fit because only we can figure this way, this out. Right. Know? So. It, and it's starting to happen. They're starting to, as much as I know they get tired of hearing me say this over and over again, they're starting to realize it. And, you know, I can honestly say there's people making efforts to make sure we get the resources that we need to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. It's a beautiful thing when um, the oversight of nonprofit industrial complex or government like are, are like minimal, right? Like we respect the places where these money come from we respect the work that it took to get these resources here and like just because you got the resources here doesn't mean like you know what's the best thing to do with them or you're the best person to execute um on all of them communities have the ability to (laughs) help themselves and and do the things that you know are right for them And, and to your point uh what i've went through is people that come in the parachuters when they come in they tell me the help that I need. And I'm like, that's not what I need, but I don't want you get to the point where you don't want to challenge that because you might risk not getting anything. Yeah. So you go along with that for so long, but now I think we're at a point now where um, we evolved so much that we're like, nah, we're not sticking with that. This is what we need. We don't need that. Uh, how to write a, uh, a resume class, you know? Yeah. Like, it's not a resume that's preventing people from getting jobs or employment, right? Um, like, it, it's not just that, right? Um, it, it's relationships, it's resources, it, it's all those things. Um, you know, in the face of all the all the obstacles, what gives you hope? Man, it's so much, man. I would say my friends that are still incarcerated, mm. uh, I get calls all the time. Mm-hmm. And they hit me up and they say, hey, man, um, you, you are they, they, they tell me and not to be arrogant or boast myself. They said, you are going to be the one who changes this for us. So that is what gives me hope. But at the same time, it's also what gives me a burden. Right. So it's it's enlightening that people uh, trust in me. It's also burdensome to know that I got so much on my shoulders. So. It's the gift and the curse. <laughs> mm. uh, wonderful burden to have. Um, we're going to come back in just a minute to uh, wrap up with the questions that everybody answers on the podcast right after this. Really quick, just want to drop in a reminder that if you're listening to this podcast when it launches or anytime before September 4th, there's still time to sign up for our restorative justice intensive for this fall. If you're listening to this episode after that deadline, that's okay. We're still definitely going to have other opportunities for you to engage in this work on deep levels and on introductory levels through our asynchronous courses and future in-depth trainings. So link the show notes to stay up to date on all the things that we have going 
going on. Now back to the questions that everyone answers with Joaquin. We've talked a lot about restorative justice and your work and the way that um, these philosophies um, and frameworks apply. But in your own words, can you define restorative justice? I think uh, restorative justice is equity and equality in practice. Mm -hmm. What has been an oh shit moment for you? Either like a moment like you messed up, made a mistake, wish you did something different as you've been doing this work and what did you learn from it? Um, I was invited to actually talk to a group of individuals, uh, men, some my age, some older, uh, about solving particular violence and issues in our community. Mm -hmm. And me having a framework that I already created, I went in there not knowing, but as a parachuter, yeah. telling them, hey, let's do, do this, that, and the third. And they were like, no. And as a result, we didn't get to develop that relationship. Um, and, you know, they pressed on, they're doing great work, but it was something that I was just like, I was doing what I'm against because yeah. maybe I fell into their system. So it gave me a chance to backtrack and, and to reevaluate how I approach things within our community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like just because like we leave and get knowledge and come back doesn't mean like, hey, you've been gone. Like you don't know what's going on here. You don't um, or you don't know us like just because, you know, we're black, just because we're community, just because we come up with similar background doesn't mean like, you know, what is best for like this particular group of people. I think like. The principles of this work are the same, but like you were saying, the principles of this work are relationship. And if we start with like solutions and this is what we need to do, as opposed to like, hey, like, let me get to know you and, you know, your community and like, how can we work together? Because like our liberation is tied up with each other's like, that's, that's a different approach. Great reminder, great lesson for everyone. Um, this question might be a little bit of a challenge, but I, I think you're up for it. You get to sit in circle with four people that are alive. Who are they? And what is the question you ask the circle? Oh, man. Oh, man, this is a good question. I would like to put in the circle, I'm going to say Bob Marley. Um, I'm going to go with um, Fred Hampton from the Black Panthers. Yeah. J. Edgar Hoover, I would like to have him. And then for my fourth, uh, I'm going to go with Malcolm X, my birthday twin. <laughs> and what is the question that you would ask that circle? How did we get here? Mm -hmm. Right. And I want to leave that open because I, I know everybody in that circle will know what I am speaking to. I think so. Sometimes on this podcast, I turn that. Uh, question back to the guest. Um, instead of like asking you, how do we get there? How do we get here? There being like when all of them were alive, but how did we get here? Like, what is the way forward? It's community, love and abundance, and co elevation. Yeah, in, in all of the ways uh, resources, sharing stories, building connection. Absolutely. Um, man, you've given us so much. Um, <laughs> two more questions. Um, this one requires a little bit of homework, just like Deb did for me. Who's one person that I should have on this podcast? And you have to help me get them on. Charles Smith. Mm, tell us about Charles. Charles Smith, he works here at Community Works. He just did 24 years straight. Mm. Uh, former gang leader, turned his life around while incarcerated and created a six-figure business while incarcerated. Mm. He has a heck of a story. Um, very intelligent brother. Um, I call him my big brother. Um, I think he would give you so much information uh, and, you know, give you a really good story too. So. Beautiful. Well, looking forward to that introduction and we'll get him on these airwaves. Finally, how and where can people support your work um, in the way that you want to define that um, in the ways that you want to be supported? There's a couple of ways. So uh, Modus Theater. Uh, so we're going around, we're traveling, we're actually visiting DA offices, uh, sharing our stories, um, getting them to hopefully start changing some of these laws. We have positively affected some of the law um, and legislation here in Colorado. We plan that to do that nationwide. Um, so if uh, anybody's interested, uh, if they have any connections to their local DA, uh, please reach out to Modus Theater. Um, and there we can set up, um, you know, uh, a time where we can come to that location and share our stories 
and uh, start look, talking about what change looks like in the, the, the criminal justice system in that location. So to support our community, I tell everybody that doesn't live in our community, uh, go patronize the businesses that are owned by the denizens of that community, right? You know, it's, it's cool you guys wanna march with us. I appreciate that, we love it. But if you can support our locally owned businesses, um, that's so much, it's so much help. Uh, two, if you wanna support Community Works, you can go to www.commwrks.org. Uh, you can also get some insight about what we're doing, who we're helping and who we're empowering. And you can donate on there. Um, also, you can come visit our businesses. We own barbershops, right? Barbershops are the intersection in our community and always have been. Um, and we use that as our um, uh, port of entry. So if you want a haircut, please visit one of our locations and get a haircut. Um, it goes back to our community. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Joaquin, for sharing your stories, your wisdom, um, your invitations to doing this work with, with all of our community here. Anything else you want to leave the listeners with? Love and abundance. Absolutely. Well, again, many thanks to Joaquin. Thank you all for listening. And we'll be back with another episode of Someone Living This Restorative Justice Life next week. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast on whatever platform you're using right now. It really helps us further amplify this work. You can also stay connected with us by joining our Mighty Network community, following us on social media, getting on our email list, rocking our merch, signing up for a workshop, or inviting us to do work supporting your community. So many options! All the ways to get involved are in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.